Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Sometimes I get these emails from people, oh, I'm 23 years old, and I don't know what my passion is in life. Is it too late for me? Am I a failure? And that's just so ridiculous. First off, maybe you're not really meant we're not it's not like we were born and we're so different from the other trillion species on this planet that we have this god-given passion each one of us is this unique fingerprint or snowflake or whatever that is meant to have this special purpose in the world we're not we're not you know it's much more important to just be relaxed and calm and be good to the people around you than have this overriding purpose Jay is rolling. So I decided to do uh, an episode about how to find your passion. And when we were discussing this, it was Jay, audio engineer extraordinaire, Robin, my wife, we were talking about this. And Robin was mentioning how, by the way, hello, Robin, my wife. Uh, (laughs) We were talking about, at first you were mentioning um, how, yeah, kids want to know how to find their passion. And that's true. Um, but I also said that even many people in their 50s who have been commuting to work for 30 straight years, sometimes they want a life change or sometimes they get laid off or sometimes something drastic that happens that forces them to make you know these life-changing decisions. People even in their 50s want to find out what their passion is and how to, how to explore it, how to learn it, how to monetize it. And Jay said, um, yeah, yeah, that's true too. Old people want to find their passions. And I'm like, Jay, old people, I'm 52 years old now. So it's not like I'm <laughs> walking around in a walker or anything. Like, But yeah, I find my pa- new passions all the time, even in the late great 50s that I'm in. Before, right before, I'm moments from death of old age, and I still want to do things I'm passionate about. Jay's trying hard not to laugh because he's in charge of the audio, but we'll, we'll make him laugh. Meanwhile, um, I, I at first, sometimes I get these emails from people, oh, I'm 23 years old and I don't know what my passion is in life. Is it too late for me? Am I a failure? And that's just so ridiculous. First off, maybe you're not really meant. We're not, it's not like we were born and we're so different from the other trillion species on this planet that we have this God-given passion. Each one of us is this unique fingerprint or a snowflake or whatever that is meant to have this special purpose in the world. We're not, we're not, you know, it's much more important to just be relaxed and calm and be good to the people around you than have this overriding purpose. Like your purpose is to, you know, save the, the, you know, the Amazon forest. If that's your, if that's what you're good at and you could do it, then, then great. But don't be stressed. If you don't have this amazing purpose or you don't know what it is, right away. I'll tell you about a couple of times I have found different things I'm passionate about. And by the way, it's changed so much for me. Like when I was really young, I was passionate about, I don't know, I wanted to be a professor of computer science. Then I wanted to be a writer of novels. I remember uh, I, I actually was going to graduate school for computer science and I was away for the summer. I was with a bunch of friends and I saw one friend of mine who was, he had the classic like look of a writer and he was always like writing in coffee shops. And this was around 1990. This girl that I had a crush on fell for him because she liked that whole writer thing. And suddenly this is it. This is why I suddenly became really passionate about writing. So I started reading 
every novel I could get my hands on. Everyone was talking about all these. I didn't take a single English course in my entire um, college career. And I knew nothing about any great works of literature, but I started reading constantly. I started writing every day. I started writing 3000 words a day. I started doing this to the detriment of all my computer science classes. So within a year, I got thrown out of graduate school. There was many reasons, but probably the biggest one was that I was writing every day. And I wrote four novels and I wrote dozens and dozens of short stories. And I'd love to find these novels, but they're all gone now somehow. Uh, I don't know where they're, they were all saved online at some computer that doesn't exist anymore. And nothing got published. Not a single word I wrote got published. And this is 3000 words a day, 365 days a year for at least, I did that until I moved to New York City. I still st continue writing every day, but not 3000 words a day. But so I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of words that, that was, but everything I wrote, I tried to get published. I would send out to publishers and agents and for short, the short stories I was writing, I would send out to magazines. Not a not only did nobody publish anything, my great classics, like, uh, let me see if I can remember one of the titles. One of the titles was The Prostitute, The Poor Novelist, The, uh, oh gosh, I can't even remember the title of this classic book uh, that I wrote. Anyway, it was, a, it was a novel that I wrote in an entire three days uh, and that didn't get published. Another one was, uh, I called it The Book of Orpheus, which is such a pretentious title. <laughs> that didn't get published. That was my first one. Then I wrote a, a novel, a historical novel about King David. I called that The Book of David, being very original. It was right after I wrote The Book of Orpheus. <laughs> that one didn't get published. Then I wrote, um, uh, uh, gosh, I can't remember. I think I wrote how to, how to win at video games. That was the name of a novella and that didn't get published. So here's what I did. I chose myself. Even in 1994, I did this. I printed everything up on a, it's almost the size of a mini pad. Like I, it, it's, it was supposed to uh, fit in the palm of your hand and you could read it in one direction and then turn it upside down and read it in the other direction. So I printed that up on the copy machine at my work. I'd already been thrown out of graduate school and I was working as a computer programmer, but I wrote the program in the first week and then I kept telling everybody, oh, it's really hard, I'm still working on it. And I never had to do any programming again. I just focused on writing and I printed up like a couple hundred copies of this mini book of a bunch of my short stories and two novellas. And I went to every bookstore in town. This was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I went to every bookstore in town and I let them sell my little booklet for 25 cents. So that was my first self-published booklet. I think the overall booklet was called How I Saved the World from Mutual Assured Destruction. And that was the novella that with that title, you'd read one direction, then you turn it upside down and, you, and you'd read How to Win at Video Games in the Other Direction. And I sold out about 80 copies of that book for 25 cents a copy. I put my phone number in the back of the book. One person called me and we had a, 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 I don't remember the conversation at all, but that was my first self-published book. And then I decided, you know what? I need connections. And so I, I was watching TV whenever I wasn't writing, I was usually watching TV and I was obsessed with both MTV and HBO. And so I figured I want to work at HBO and I applied for a job there. And I also applied for a job at JP Morgan, the bank. JP Morgan offered me a job for 80,000 a year salary, which would have, for me at the time, I was making $27,600 a year as a computer programmer. So I would have gone from 27,000 and change to 80,000 a year. HBO also offered me a job. They offered me 40,000, half of JP Morgan. I took the HBO job because I was very serious about my quote unquote passion, which was writing. I thought I could go to HBO as a computer programmer. And then once I was in the big city, magic would happen. And the next thing you know, I would have a TV show on HBO and I'd write all the novels I want and everything would get published and it would be amazing. It didn't work out that way. I ended up, uh, one thing led to another. I tried to do, I got obsessed with doing a TV show for HBO. I, uh, I had a big attempt at that. That's another story. Then I tried another TV show. I'll talk about that for a second. I, I had a friend of mine who was 
uh, very funny. She was a, a woman. That's why I, I use the pronoun she. And I told her, put an ad in the paper and say, you want to go on a blind date. And at the time, people put ads in newspapers, not like now. This was 1995. And so I said, put an ad in the paper, or 1996. Put an ad in the paper and say you want to go on a blind date. And so 100 people responded, and she picked the location for the date. Now, what we did was a couple hours before her big date, we wired up the whole restaurant. We had video cameras everywhere. We had audio everywhere. We were sitting on either side of the table she was at, and we had audio there. And we videotaped the entire date. The date didn't know. I call we called this blind date, and and just insane things were happening. We we videotaped two of these so-called episodes, and on one of them, uh, the guy, the entire date, the guy was wondering whether he was, and he was confiding in her. He was trying to figure out if he was straight or gay. So he was kind of dating both sides, uh, you know, men and women, to sort of figure it out. And then the next episode, the guy actually got a phone call from his wife in the middle of the date. And so, and then he still continued the date and we had a release form for him to sign at the end. He wouldn't sign the release form until Amy, my friend, uh, agreed to have, would agree to have sex with him, which she didn't agree, so I think. And uh, then we videotaped it, we pitched it around, we pitched it to... HBO, everybody loved it. But then as became common, whenever I pitched a TV show, nobody ever called me back ever again. And I even worked at HBO. So that was frustrating. But then I got obsessed with being an entrepreneur. Then I got obsessed with being an investor. Then I got obsessed with writing again and podcasting, playing poker. I became so obsessed with poker. I played it for 365 days straight, including the day my oldest child was born. I was there for the birth, but then left afterwards to play poker. So passions change. But one thing I realized, if you want to find your passion, there's a couple of techniques I realized. One is figure out what you were passionate about at age 13 or 12, kind of this critical age, in right in between childhood, puberty, adulthood. Figure out what you were interested in, what you were passionate about then, and see how it aged. So for instance... You were interested in sports, but now you're this, you know, overweight, out of shape guy or or lady in her 40s or 50s, and obviously you're not going to be a professional athlete. Maybe your passion aged from sports into fantasy sports, and you could start a fantasy sports league or or bet on it or write a blog about it. I pick that as an example because Matthew Berry, one of the first guests on my podcast in 2014, he went from being a Hollywood screenwriter, to hating it, to switching his interests, to going back to sports. He got, he got obsessed with fantasy sports. He started blogging about it. And now he's the number one or the only anchor ESPN has ever hired for fantasy sports. And even when I walk down the street with this guy, people recognize him and thank him for all his fantasy sports picks and, and so on. So he's, he was a great example of seeing how his passion aged. Uh, uh, I know for myself, I was always interested in writing and my passion age. So I didn't ended up not writing novels, but I wrote, you know, a whole bunch of nonfiction books about a variety of subjects. Uh, another thing I was always interested in, even as a kid was investing. And then I lost interest in it. But back in my thirties, I became interested and obsessed in it again. So again, a lot of the things I became interested in as an adult Later on, I realized, oh, they've aged in different ways with me, and I became interested in the way, the ways in which they aged. So for another thing, I was always used to, um, I always used to interview people. When I was in sixth grade, I was really interested in politics. So what I would do is I would call up a whole bunch of politicians. I called up from the president of the United States on down. I called up every politician I could think of. I remember I spoke to Senator Bill Bradley, who was a senator from New Jersey at the time. I spoke to uh, this guy, Jim Wright, who was a congressman who became the Speaker of the House. I spoke to Rex Stoughton, who was the chief usher of the White House. I couldn't get a hold of President Jimmy Carter, who was the president at the time, but I spoke to his the chief usher. I spoke to all these governors, senators, congressmen. I visited, and how did I speak to them? 
I called them up and I basically said, I'm writing a column for my local newspaper. It was called the home news, my local newspaper. And would they speak to this kid? I was 12 years old. Would they speak to me? And at one point, the editor-in-chief of the Home News actually called me, and I had never spoken to this guy before, and I had nothing to do with them, period. And he said to me, you can't say you're writing a column for the Home News. You're not. There are people with PhDs trying to write columns for our newspaper. You're a 12-year-old kid. You can't say, you can't call up the President of the United States and say you're writing a column for the Home News. But he said, I'll give you a tour of the Home News, which he did. And it was, uh, it was fun. And I kept calling people and saying that anyway, all my interviews were published in a column and in a big article in another newspaper. And I got $75 for it. My first paying gig, it was the South Brunswick central post, but that is the first time I started interviewing and it was a lot of fun. How did that passion age? Well, of course it aged by me eventually doing a podcast, I don't know, 33 years later. So You'll, you'll, if you look back, you'll find your passions age and, and might intersect with things you're interested in now. Another way to find your passion is go to the bookstore, walk around at the different sections. Is there any section where you would feel comfortable reading all of the books in that section? And if it is, chances are there's probably some way to monetize or, or explore that interest. You know, look at someone like I've had recently on the podcast, Dan Carlin, who has his own podcast, Hardcore History, which I think actually gets the most downloads per episode of any podcast in the world right now. And Dan Carlin's not a historian, but he's fa he's been fascinated since he's, he was a little kid about history. And he was always talking to his family about all these weird historical things and interests and different perspectives than you read in the usual history textbooks. And finally, his mother-in-law, as he put it, was so sick of him telling all these stories around the dinner table. She said, why don't you start a podcast? And he said, well, I'm not a historian. I can't do it. And then it was like a light uh, sort of appeared in his head. And he realized he, nothing can stop him from starting his own podcast and, and telling the history stories that are not in our usual, the, not the stories usually told in our history textbooks. And he, he started his own history podcast. Now he makes a living essentially being a historian, although as he constantly reminded me in our podcast, he's not a historian. And yet his, his, his history episodes are more, uh, I don't know, more interesting to me than any history textbook has, has ever been. So there's so many examples out there of people who kind of reinvent themselves by sort of being reinvigorated by finding out what their new passions are. And that's, and again, at any point, you can find a passion, you can explore it, and you could potentially monetize it like Dan Carlin does it with his podcast. I've done it throughout my life by either investing or starting a company. Like I started up several companies around uh, my interest in investing. I started a company around my interest in technology. I started a podcast. I've now written books that have been profitable for me. And uh, I don't know. What do you, so I just, so I'm, I'm doing an experiment here too. I'm doing a podcast where I tell a story. Any other stories, uh, Robin, or did, that you know of that, that I could tell or? or... Um, I know your interest is you're reading books constantly about parenting and right. we're planning on doing episodes about that because we have, between us, we have five kids and, you know, uh, I see you all the time. You're essentially obsessed with parenting, which I'm not. And you could just look at my kids and as an example of that. And no, no I'm just, I'm being hard on my kids. Uh, but any other well, stories I, or. I think that, you know, it's like with our kids at their ages, it's a question about what is their passion because we want them to be happy. So I've sort of been focusing on that. When, when you were a kid, did you have a passion? And I was just thinking about that. Horses. Yeah. You were in rodeos. I, I How old were you when you first entered into a rodeo? Mm, high school. So probably my freshman year. And so did you like practice? Um, how how often did you go like, I don't know, what do you call it? Practice I rode every horse, day. Horse practice. You went every day went, horseback I, I riding? Rode, yes, because and, that's just what I did. And what would just, you, would you practice like jumping over the things? I did, but my mother did not want me to do that. I was not allowed to do that, but I loved it. 
You did so it anyway. I, just, I did it anyway. Who cares about your mom? <laughs> and then, and then, did you practice like I've seen you do all these yes, like rope tricks? Did you practice roping. those? Yeah, I did. Did you have like it a tutor for those? No, I didn't have a tutor. I had my mother, who was professional rodeo, so she, she taught was? me. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's one of the first women in in PRCA. What's the What's the PRCA? Professional Rodeo Association. What's the C? Uh, professional Rodeo and Cowboy or Cowgirl and, and Yeah, I think so. I, I don't know. And I don't so have to look and, at that. And so, okay, so you had a passion and you were you were interested in what else were you passionate about as a kid? Well, let's see. Much I I loved um art and that was something that I carried through uh, because I came became a hairstylist and trained, you know, in doing color. So that was my, I guess, hair was the muse that I used. Well, to, now uh, also with art, I see you 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 do art all over yeah, this house I, that we live in. So I had a house or an apartment in New York City with basically no objects in it. I was just coming off of this two and a half year period where I threw away all my possessions and was living in Airbnbs. Then I got an apartment, had nothing in it. You moved in, and suddenly one day I left. There was nothing in. It. I, I came back, and I thought I was in the the wrong apartment. There was there was stuff everywhere. <laughs> there was like art from like every country in the world. There was your art, and you even yeah. been making art recently. Like you did that thing with right. the, the fabric that where you could, if you rub your hand on it, it you could it make all it. sorts of yeah. shapes and colors and and drawings yeah. and then you frame that and now people whenever they come over our house they get like obsessed with these right with these things so you're still you're still doing your 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 passion has aged with you in in right. the venerable years of the 50s as as Jay would put it <laughs> you're an old woman now uh, uh So it's a creative I've been always been a creative person so I think a lot of my creativity has been with how to manage kids so that's sort of where a lot of my energy, like hang them upside down outside right? of that window. What do you <laughs> mean? What do you mean? Your creativity is how to manage kids. Well, what know, creative thing would you do you managing have, your kids? Well, you have to be creative and figure out because each one of them, you know, is different. So you have to be able to, you know, uh, manage that, and, well, and you like have a, to be, come up with something unique for each one of them, and and how to deal with all the the issues that that arise. But what's an example? Uh, well, let's see. So with, you know, with the girls, you know, boys, boy problems, um, you know, uh, problems with their friends. Um, and I've seen you deal with that. Like every situation, it's like they have a new, particularly girls. And I have two daughters, you have two daughters. So we both see this and it's, it's as if they have a new situation every Every single day day with friends, particularly after period with friends, Boyfriend, somebody was talking about somebody else, right. and but then they heard the other person talking about it, and now that everybody, all, all of them are upset, right? And they're crying, not always crying, but and and you. It seems to happen all at once too, because they're all they have the same cycle, so it's like. Oh. Actually, you might know this, but I don't. Do all four of our girls? Do they have? Are they on this? Are their cycles synced? <laughs> Particularly when they're all living under the same roof. Well, if they live with us all together, yes. Like they, this uh, typically, that happens. I think. Did that happen? Do you know if it actually if it happened? I don't know if that happened because I'm I'm not keeping track of that. But there are apps for that now, which I just found out about, which was interesting to keep, you know, their cycle. So I was like, wow, I need that so that I know when I can approach them. So <laughs> without getting <laughs> right, without getting yeah, you 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 don't even want to deal with your own daughters yeah. having PMS. <laughs> right. So that that explains a lot. But um, I'll tell you the craziest thing I ever had was passionately interested in. This was around like eighth grade, and I got passionately interested in meditation. And I didn't want to tell my parents because I thought it was against their religion, so I was ashamed to tell them. But I would skip school and as much as possible and there was this field in back of my house i would i would i would run across this field this farmer's field and then this bus went straight from the highway in back of that field to new york city i go into new york city and there was this kind of cultish meditation group and i would just sit and meditate with them all day and then at night i would meditate and i would i in the morning i set my alarm for 4 45 
a.m. and I would meditate for like an hour. I don't know. I think I thought I was going to get like psychic powers from this. That was like my <laughs> initial goal. And I did this for about three years, this obsession. But for me also at age into a kind of as, uh, uh, as an adult, I, I don't always meditate, but uh, I, I had it my own kind of more mature meditation mm -hmm. practice than all the BS that's constantly right. taught in, you know, I kind of researched it enough as a kid and then even later that I have my own version of a meditation practice as opposed to falling for any of the garbage that people, oh, pay $5,000 to get your mantra. And by the way, mm -hmm. it's secretly the same. Don't tell your mantra to anyone because it happens to be the same mantra <laughs> we're telling every single other person that we're charging $5,000 for. There's so much BS out there in kind of this cultish self-help mm -hmm. BS stuff. But since I had been doing, since I was a kid, I had a more you know, mature way of looking at it. I don't monetize my interest in this at all, but it's something that became much more easily a life practice for me rather than being fooled into into something else like so many people are. Was that uh, before puberty or after that you got That into was it? right after puberty. I know that because I literally thought I would start meditating and have psychic powers and could read girls. I want. Why did I want to have psychic powers? So I could read girls' minds to see if they liked me or not. But it was pretty, I didn't need psychic powers to, to determine that. <laughs> it turned out none of them liked me. <laughs> like I would, I remember even in eighth grade, I remember one time, I don't know why we were learning this, but in gym, the, they were learning square dancing. Why would they teach square dancing to a bunch of Jews in gym in the Northeast? I have no idea. But I remember no girl wanted to physically touch me. And so they would all whisper to each other, you don't have, just hold your hand like three inches from his. You don't have to actually touch him. Just have the motion as if you're touching him. No girl liked me. One time, this was in 10th grade, I asked a girl out and literally she started r immediately running. She started running as fast as possible away from me. Another time I asked a girl out, she also ran, but also yelled at the same time, not in a million years, which I viewed as a, an ounce of hope that maybe in a million, she didn't rule it out completely. She said maybe in a million years, something like that. So I was very optimistic, but meditation certainly did not help me uh, get a girlfriend. I think though, with what you did with your meditation, it was a coping mechanism that you used through your life and you still use it, which I think is really very healthy. You what know, do you a lot mean of by kids, coping mechanism? Well, because when you go through puberty um, and you, you know, some, some people turn to drugs or alcohol or, or something. And it's, and it's a time when I think you actually go through puberty that you, you find what your coping mechanism is. So for instance, mine was riding horses all the time. So that was my way of, of being alone or just with my horse, uh, peace. And, 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 and now when I go ride a horse, I, I can smell it. I love the, the stables. I love the way everything smells and it calms me down. So when you were a little kid and so this was after puberty and you know, your mom was, I know your mom was strict in other ways. You probably weren't allowed to have a boyfriend or whatever. Uh, or at least maybe you were, maybe you had constant boyfriends, but you never told me about it. But uh, uh, am I right in saying that your mom was strict and wouldn't well, like Well, they're you? very strict, right. I couldn't go out on a date. Right. So this was maybe like an escape, not only an escape thing, but let me ask you a question. Is it true uh, girls often experience their first orgasm while riding a horse? Did you ever get uh, no. excited while riding no. a horse? Away, about to go down. No. All right. I was just, I just asking. I figured the podcast did you hear is that? like a truth. <laughs> it's like a truth serum. Yeah. Everybody has to answer the truth. It's like when Scott was on, our friend Scott Cohen was on the podcast and he was talking about this company he um, was involved in and helped, helped start and help, you know, move forward, which was a um, erectile dysfunction drug. And I was able to ask him, well, did you ever use it? Yeah. And he had to answer the truth, which was yes. He tried it out. But, um, uh, so I had to ask you that, <laughs> but, uh, I, I remember one time I, I, I think a lot of times passions and interests, particularly as a kid are escape mechanisms right. because you're not able to, uh, fully indulge in what you might be interested in socially. You know, I found the people mm -hmm. who were like the most social in high school, they weren't, they didn't necessarily have these weird outside interests. And like I had, you know, like there was one point, so here I was in the in the 80s, this little kid, again, 
uh, white Jewish Northeastern kid, and I got obsessed with breakdancing. And I, because again, I thought maybe a, I loved it as an art form. I just thought it was so interesting to watch, and and b, I thought I would meet girls this way, which of course did not happen as usual. I didn't meet any girls throughout all of high school, but I got really obsessed with becoming a good break dancer. So I found some kids uh, who would give me lessons and I gave them like $10 and they gave me lessons for an entire summer. And then I found other friends near my hometown where we would, we would just hang out and practice all day. And I got obsessed with it. And again, it doesn't really age well, for, particularly for me. Like, it's not like I'm ever going to do it professionally, but some days I do it for exercise. I, I definitely, it's going to sound, I definitely break dance every single day but now just for exercise. It's the main way I get exercise. Yeah, I do too. I think when I was in high school, you know, I, you I, I, I would not so. break dance, but I'd dance just in front of the mirror or something, you know? And and I still do that when I'm stressed or if I want to just relax, I'll just dance. It's it's very meditative. I think all these things, we just, the coping mechanisms is a form of meditation. So it's good to pick up those sort of good habits when you're when you're young and you want to create that environment for your kids yeah. during that time. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. 
So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or a pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. One thing I always think is important is once you have a passion and that something you're interested in, you know, there's, you have two choices. One is you just one or three choices. One is you ignore it because it's not like the cool thing to do, or, or you don't think it'll, if you're a kid, you don't think it'll get you into college or if you're an adult, you don't think there's any money there. Both of those ideas are wrong by the way, but often people will avoid their passions because they're afraid of something. And, uh, the other things you you could do it, but not try to learn, not try to be better at it. Like you could have been interested in horseback riding, but never really wanted to get better, but you chose to, to learn how to get better and eventually, you know, kind of measure yourself by performing in rodeos and so Mm -hmm. on. And, you know, so like one interest of mine kind of right after the break dancing one was I had always, I knew the rules to chess, but I wasn't a chess player. And so I was 16 going on 17 and the chess club in my school, it, they were missing a player. They were go, doing an away game uh, in some town, a couple of towns away. They were missing a player. And so they asked me to play on the, what's the bottom board, the worst player on the team. And so I barely knew the rules. I went to play and I won the game. And there was suddenly validation. Like every, all the other kids in the chess team were like, oh man, that's great. You won. And I felt like good about myself. And so I started reading chess books and I got obsessed and I started, I, and, and I started to learn, okay, this is what you do when you have a passion. You read every book you could find, you watch videos if you can, you, you play or do it as much as you can. You get lessons from professionals. So, so I took lessons from uh, a guy who was one of the best players in the world when he was younger, uh, another person who became the U.S. chess champion. So I took all these lessons and gradually, and and not gradually, very quickly, I got very good because I was taking all these lessons. I was reading all these books. I was playing in every tournament I could play in. And within about a year and a half, I was uh, the junior champion of my state. And that, I didn't become a professional chess player, obviously, but having that on my resume, I think helped me get into college, grad school, helped me get a bunch of jobs. 
you know, so there's always different ways. If you get really good at something, anything, mm-hmm. there's always ways you could turn it into something useful, right. either directly or indirectly in your life. You could use it to, for instance, with horseback riding, I'm sure you've used it to make friends. I'm sure you've used it to network with people. Well, actually, I was just thinking probably um, my skills of parenting came from training my horse or, uh, you know, with all the animals because I love animals. So I think that was probably the beginning of my, you know... uh, Your parenting style? Parenting style. Well, well, okay, so tell me an analogy between um, how you would train a horse and how you'll train a kid. Well... Basically, and by the way, you're a great mother and all your kids love you. So, And I've seen the results. So whatever analogy you say is going to be a great analogy. <laughs> well, it all really comes down to trust because, uh, you know, when training a horse, you, you really have to get the trust first with that horse because you become a partner when you're on that horse and he has to really respect you. And, and you have to uh, actually let them know, you know, who's in charge. You know, I do let my kids know that. I mean, I did in the, even now I do, but I've backed off a lot since they've been, you know, now they're young adults, but um, they have to respect you and, uh, but they know that they can trust me so and they know of- that, that I would never hurt them. They know that uh, I always have their best interest at heart. So I think a lot of that is, is just in being consistent um, how, how do you get the trust of a horse, though, and, and how does that translate into gaining trust um, with a, a kid? Well, it's just um, spending time with them. So, you know, I think it's important to spend time with your kids. So with a horse, when you were younger... I spent a lot of time with my horse. Even when you weren't riding... Right. I would go out there, and you're, I'm feeding the horse, so mm-hmm. I take care of him. Um, I groom him. Um I talked to him. I, you know, it's just funny because he was like my best friend. I mean, I had many horses, but each one of them, they they were like my best friend. So uh, they they really liked me. You know, sometimes they would get in trouble, you know, because they would bug me off or something. What do you mean bug you off? Well, they would kick me off. They would just throw me off. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so that okay. was not fun. Okay, so when they did that, what did you do? How did you... you well, they, they, you know, got in trouble. They had time out. So trouble. what does that mean? Like, what would you say? So, what would you do? Well, that means, well, first I'd have to go catch them because they'd run off because they knew they were in trouble. <laughs> um, but I'd take them back to the uh, the stable. And um, so the thing is, is like, if I couldn't catch them, I couldn't do anything. If they did something, they tried to kick me off or buck me off, I would have to manage it right then and there. I couldn't correct the horse if... Like if I caught him down the road, because he wouldn't remember what he did. Right. So okay. Even with say, children are so, like that too. So, so like if they you, do something wrong, you've got to correct them right there. But I'm curious about the horse. Like, so let's say you're sitting on the horse and it it does something. You know, it tries to kick you off, but it fails. But it did something bad. What would you do? Well, each horse was different. So sometimes I would turn him, and and he'd have to go in a circle, just so that he I was able to get control over him at that point. So the and horses so, are huge, and right? You so you have to make like, sure that you're in control and not them. So you would like pull back on the reins I would and pull, twist a little? Oh, I would pull towards myself and I, I would turn from one with the, yeah, just turn them. So what's the equivalent with a kid? So what was what? What's the equivalent? Uh, well, the equivalent is, is having them, you know, stand there, you go down to their level. And then you beat them. No, <laughs> but you, you know, you just have to, you know, it depends on what age, too. I mean, like when they were really little, of course, I'd have to hold them. They'd cry. I'd have to hold them. They'd want to leave. You can't do that. It's just all different levels of of parenting at different times and different situations. Because when they're when they're just walking and 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 children, you know, small, you want them to listen to you. Otherwise, they could run out in the street and and get killed. So it was really important. So like so like for instance. A kid might, one of your kids might want to just rush out into the street and you say, no, that's bad. And they still want to, they still try to rush out in the street when you're not looking and then you catch them. Right. So what do you do right then? Well, so what, my kids didn't do that only because I trained them from the time they were walking that if I said no, you know, they, they, it took me a while for them to not do something because they really wanted to keep doing it. But 
Yeah, so when they disobeyed. I had to hold on. No, I couldn't trust them to the point, that point. I mean, I'd always hold on to them or, you know, because I knew they were not able to listen. But once they were, you know, you know, I don't know how five, six, seven years old, they could understand. And uh, if something did, I mean, I was always around them, but if they did go towards the street, I would say freeze and they would, they would have to freeze. I mean, they would freeze. So I knew that that was a word that I said, freeze, they would freeze. And I used that many times. But if they, I did it, you, you, there was probably some times though, very in the beginning where they disobeyed that. And I'm just curious how and, you trained. And that would have happened inside a park or inside my home or something, but not, I would have never trusted that to happen in a busy intersection, let's say, you know, because I wouldn't, it was too risky. How did they learn that freeze, there would be, there would be- Consequences? There, consequences, yes. Uh, because there were always consequences if they didn't do it, you know? Like what, what a consequence be? Uh, would be- With your horse, it was, you would, you would pull right. them back and go in a circle. Then they would come in, I'd have to put them in timeout, um, and, or they wouldn't, depending on their age, uh, they weren't, you know, they had a privilege taken away. Uh, they couldn't, yeah, they couldn't go to a party or they, or they, uh, you know, had to stay home inside all weekend, whatever their age appropriate. So, so and what's interesting is, because this, this started off about talking about passions and what happens to them mm -hmm. later on, is that every area you get expertise in, it has, it's, it's special to be an expert in something. You learn things that are beyond what you would learn if you simply, like if you just simply like baseball and like watching baseball games, you never really become let's say an expert on baseball. If you don't really study the game, if you don't really, you know, read books or read all the analytics or whatever, uh, you never become an expert. It's okay. You, you, you enjoy it throughout life. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you become an expert in anything, it kind of tinges every area of life after that. Like the things you learned by becoming a, an expert enough to p participate in a rodeo, you're able to apply that to your yeah. relationships later. Like you mentioned your kid relationships, but I know you apply it to your mm -hmm. husband-wife relationships mm -hmm. as well, this, this sort of thing. I'm, I'm a well-trained husband <laughs> oh, no. at this moment. And, <laughs> and it's the same thing. Like, again, when, when I was obsessed with like chess or investing or writing, all of these things, whether I monetize them or not, different things that I learned on the course of becoming an expert or or mastering these areas have been incredibly useful to me later in life. There's, I You could take anything that I, I'm sure any of you were interested in when you were younger and see the parallels between that and what you're, what you're doing, you know, later on in life. And for instance, you've told me stories about how uh, when you started, you owned your own, you started and owned your own hair salon, you had 70 employees and a lot of the things you learned about interacting with customers, I mean, I see you apply to this day just in your relationships, like how you talk to people, how you're vulnerable with people and then they're vulnerable with you. And it's like a natural instinct for you, which I think right. you probably learned from dealing with customers back then. Right, no, it's true. Um, I learned so much uh, dealing with the public and it was just a one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and uh, we were very expensive back then. And, you know, the clients expected a lot. And, uh, but, you know, the situations that occurred during that time. What's the craziest situation that anyone ever confided in you? Uh, and that's another thing too. You learn, you, you, you're like a black hole. So you just, you can hear everything, but you'd never tell that to anybody else. Until you know? you're and on the podcast 20 years later. And that's where, you know, gossip, you know, we, you know, never did that. And that was important, I think for these people, but um, I think the craziest things, and this happened more than once, uh, where we would have to book, uh, the, the husband would call and he wanted to book an appointment for his mistress. But then we knew that the wife was going to be coming in. So we had to make sure, you know, we had a great receptionist. And so she was able to manage all these, like I said, it happened more than once. So, uh, you know, we just could not put them in the same room or at the same time. And it was, it was pretty interesting. How many instances of people, either men or women, were of people cheating did you see in while working oh in a, basically a very public-facing social environment company like a hair salon? Um, I mean, it, it wasn't 
super common, but it was common enough that it was like, wow, I can't believe this is going on. It was basically a function <laughs> of your business to kind of manage. Yeah, One of the functions of your business was to, to, to help juggle this for right. either the men or the women. Right. No, was it, it more was, men or was it more women? A men. Yeah. So, but like women wouldn't come in and confide in you that, oh, um, I don't know what to do. Um, no. I'm having this affair. I don't know whether to leave my husband or not. No. Wasn't as common. And, and most of my clients were women too. And uh, never, never had that situation. So, so again, finding your passion, uh, check out what you're interested in when you're right. 12, 13, 14 years old and see how it's age through now. Another thing is go, you, you can't, you can't find out by the way, you're passionate about something until you do something. So I never was able to see, I'll just use chess as an example. I was never able to say, oh, I'm passionate about getting great at this until I started actually playing games and tournaments and so on. Stand-up comedy, I would never have realized I was passionate about it. I mean, I was always a fan, but I never realized I was passionate about it unless I actually went up on stage a bunch of times and did it. Entrepreneurship, again, I never would have had a passion for it if I didn't try it. It's not like Sometimes people say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur and they've never done it. They don't realize how hard it is. You have to figure out simple ways to start something, to experiment with something. And that could be the topic of another podcast, how to do these experiments. But you, you, can't, you can't think your way to passion. You can't read your way to passion. You have to actually do something to be, I firmly feel, to be passionate about it. And that's happened for, for every instance in my life. And then once you find what you're passionate about, you kind of have to do the passion as much as possible. You have to read about it. You have to study your own mistakes and failures uh, so you can keep improving. You have to get, let's call it a coach or an instructor so that you, that person helps you go over your, your failures and, and, and helps you course correct so you can get better and better. And, you know, there's all sorts of skills you have to have. Like, you know, you have to be able to network well. You have to go where other people are doing the passion. You have to figure out how to test yourself and measure your your success. You have to figure out um, what all the micro skills of that passion were. So like, for instance, if you're passionate about business, the micro skills are sales, marketing, ideas, execution, negotiating, and, and, and on and on. So you have to get good at all the separate Micro skills and Robin, you were just raising your hand. What, what, what did you want to say? <laughs> no, but it's interesting because I wrote this down. Um, I think that sometimes what you're good at, like you said, um, it encourages you because you think, "Wow, I'm I'm getting all the validation, and it feels good." And so yeah. that's something that I think with kids, they if they're good at something and they want to continue that, um, and w as an adult as well, but also being curious. You were always very curious. Yeah, uh, you have I to be very curious. I think it's very important to ask questions and to do experiments. I mean, that's, and I'm an entrepreneur. I've always been my whole life. And I think that's part of it is not, is being able to take that risk and to not let something that you're afraid of stop you. I think that's the biggest thing that I could say is, you know, it is scary, but do it, try it. Um, yeah, even in small ways. Like, again, it's right. how do you construct... Like, I know a lot of people who have a, a business idea and what the first thing they want to do is they want to raise a lot of money, they want to hire a bunch of programmers, mm. they're going to spend two years building the product and then release it. No, there's... I'm sure... I'm 100% sure with every business idea, there's ways to experiment for right. little to zero money, most likely zero money, and in very little time, and you could test out your idea. You could do your idea in some small way. Mm -hmm. I had this conversation with Tony Robbins actually mm -hmm. years ago, where he told me about a time he was teaching a group of Marines how to shoot better, how to aim more accurately. And he had no idea. He had never shot a gun himself. So he interviewed a bunch of people. First off, he did start shooting and practicing for himself. Then he interviewed a bunch of instructors to learn how they did it. And then what he would do is in this one group of Marines that they were testing his methods out, he put the target only one foot away. So of course they all hit a bullseye. Then he moved it two feet away. Mm -hmm. They all hit a bullseye. Then he moved it four feet away. They all hit a bullseye, eight feet away, bullseye. And finally, you know, all the way against the wall, like 60 feet away, he quickly got them to have the highest scores of any other group mm -hmm. being trained through this yeah. 
bring the target as close as possible. Right. And that's how you can experiment and start getting better in a very non-threatening way. And you can feel that validation. You can get excited right. about learning. You could learn from your mistakes. You could kind of adjust, you know, oh, I'm leaning too much this way. Right. That's at one foot away. It's going to certainly be at 60 feet away. So it was, a, it was, I find that analogy to be useful for entrepreneurship great. or for anything you want to learn. Mm -hmm. Like if I want to learn to, to be, uh, let's say a, a public speaker, you know, there's ways to try public speaking in, you know, a, a Friars Club event or some other kind of uh, a, a public speaking event that's intended for practicing uh, public mm -hmm. speaking or get a group of your friends together and, and, and try to teach a little class. You don't mm -hmm. even have to call it like talking. So, so there's, with anything you're doing, there's always ways to experiment rather than, rather than say, I can't do that or listen mm -hmm. to the, or listening to the people. Like if I'm interested in sports, it's easy for someone to say, you can't do anything in sports. You're 52 years old and you've never done sports before in your life. Well, maybe there's experiments I can construct that will right. get me more and more involved in the sports that I'm interested in. It's all your story. It's all what you believe inside of your, your head. Really, I mean, you could see somebody or your kids that you're like, oh, they're so amazing and they can do all this stuff. But if they can't see that, their perspective is totally different. They're not going to do it. So right. it's, it's, it's what you, what movie you're seeing in your mind. So with Tony Robbins, you know, bringing the, you know, for, for the rifle shooting or whatever, um, they're seeing themselves successful. Right. So, and he's like taking it out further and further. So, right. If they could do it at one foot, there's no right, reason they can't do it, do it at further. two feet. If they can do so, it at two feet, there's no I reason they could really do it at four. Great. You're right. Yeah. It's a good technique, but it, it applies to anything. It applies to, to chess, business, mm. investing, writing. There's so many ways to practice writing, no matter what, whether you're right. like fiction, nonfiction, writing books, writing stories, writing right. articles. There's so many ways to practice. And uh, so, I think with kids too, I mean, if you're a parent and you see your kids, you know, doing something that's very good and, and they are enjoying it. It's maybe something to encourage them or create the space for them to allow to do it. You know what I mean? Allow them to do it. Well, and I'll give an example with one of your daughters, my stepdaughter, mm -hmm. Sarah, okay, who's was struggling to find, she kind of knew, she kind of was thinking her way to interest. Like she maybe she was interested in esports and right. video games. Maybe she was interested in, different types of social media. And then one day we gave her, uh, again, this is a matter of doing versus thinking. We gave her ping. We got some, a friend of mine, Wally, right. who's been on Wally green, mm -hmm. who's been on the podcast. So great ping pong professional. Wally gave her some ping pong lessons and she was like, you know, and she's slightly on the spectrum and we saw her light up or I saw her yep. light up in a way that I had never seen her light up Me before. Either. Exactly. And so we once you once an experiment works, you double down on it. So we started right. giving her weekly, then twice a week, then three times a week right. ping pong lessons. Now she even works at the ping pong club. Right. And she's she in a year, she's gotten it's great. Amazing. Like she's be, I've been playing ping pong all my life. She's better than me at ping pong and she's right. on her way to play in tournaments and right. it's very ex exciting for her and it was a way for her to build a whole social network and subculture that 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 welcomes her and and, and loves her and she loves and her self-esteem is it's just great i yeah, mean it's so, just really amazing so, so sometimes you just have to try lots of things as well and right. and and i always advise people write down 10 ideas a day right Write down 10 things you may or may not be interested in. Maybe you are, maybe you are. You don't right. really know yet. And then for each one, the next day, you could write 10 things, uh, 10 ways to experiment with trying this. Like if you're interested in going horseback riding, what are 10 mm. research? What are 10 places you mm -hmm. could do horseback riding? Or if, if you're interested in um, baseball, what are 10 ways you could take your interest in baseball and, and pursue it rather than just watching baseball? Right. Or if you're interested in business, what are... 10 businesses you could start or or take a, an existing business like Google or Amazon. What's What are 10 ways Amazon can improve their business? Get that idea muscle going. Or or for me, if I'm interested in stand-up comedy, what are all the micro skills I need to learn? And then how can I practice each one of them? Or how can I learn to be better at each one of them? Write them down and then start mm -hmm. doing them. Uh, so mm -hmm. anyway, this is this was an experiment, um, <laughs> me telling a story or two about how I found my passion as both as a kid and as an adult. I don't think it's ever too late. You could be 90 years old. I just read an article actually this morning. I, don't, I didn't tell you this. 
I read an article about this woman who started doing stand-up comedy at the age of 81, and she's wow. 88 now. And she says people are constantly telling her she can't do it, but she just goes and does it. She performs her. all over the, yeah. the, the the city where she lives and, and people love her. So she wow. created this whole new career at the age of 81. So it's never too late, That's right. no matter what you're interested in, to find a passion, to reinvent yourself, and to monetize it. We didn't talk as much about monetizing it, but that could be the subject of another storytelling-based podcast. And if you have any questions, um, you can find me on Twitter at jaltacher, or you can find Robin at Twitter at raltacher and ask questions or tell your own story about your passion or ask how to monetize a different passion. We'll address that on a future podcast, but feel free to start asking questions about these things. And also just let us know if you enjoyed this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And Robin, thanks for- It was fun. I had fun. Thanks for joining me <laughs> the first time you're on the podcast. I know I interrupted you a lot, but I'll do it less and less in the future. So don't tweet, stop interrupting your own wife. <laughs> I know someone's going to tweet that. And Jay, thank you for calling people in their 50s old to kick this <laughs> off. And thanks for listening. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.